good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please turn tonight in the Word of God to the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee. Uh, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. I have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me, and keep my commandments and do them, and though they were of you cast out unto the utmost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. In times of trouble, uh, the great men of God throughout the Bible know that the first action is always to pray and to seek the Lord. Before action comes prayer. Before an attempt to turn around the situation, there is a seeking of God. The best of men are always men of prayer. Nehemiah, he saw much done for the Lord. Despite opposition, and trials and lethargy among the people of God, he saw, he saw work completed for the Lord. And in light of that, you see how God was pleased to bless a man. He was a man of prayer. The book opens with a chapter that's devoted almost entirely to the subject of prayer. And it is a marker to us, a reminder to us all, that God's work will only flourish in the context of prayer. We have no right to expect any prosperity or any flourishing but in the engagement in prayer. We were studying the, uh, the decrees of God on the Sabbath school hour on Sunday morning. 
that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And you might expect, in light of that, there would be an absence of prayer in the Bible. But whilst we see in the Word of God the clear teaching of God's sovereignty that all things happen according to His sovereign will, at the very same time, we see an emphasis on the importance of fervent praying. It is an absolute priority in the work of God. Note tonight, to begin with, the context of this prayer. We have a number of uh, interesting features regarding the man Nehemiah and his times. Let's think initially about the times in which he lived. Uh, Again, whenever you are studying the the Word of God, it is important you do so in light of, of history. You need to understand, well, when did Daniel live? When did Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, all of these men, and in what context did they live? Well, there is much history that comes uh, before the the words of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2 and the verse number 1 gives us the insight that Nehemiah is there in the 20th year of this king known as Artaxerxes. He's a king in the days of Nehemiah. But before that, you need to go back. You go back in the Scriptures, and perhaps turning back to Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles very quickly <clears throat> outlines quite a number of years of history. And chapter 36 of Second Chronicles tells about a reign of a man, a king called Jehoiakim. He's king of Judah. He's 20 and 5 years old when he begins to reign. He reigns 11 years in Jerusalem. He does that which is evil. Uh, And then you have a very important marker in the word of God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters and carried him to Babylon. He also carried the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. And so here you see something of the Babylonian captivity. You know, the people of God had, uh, had so turned their back against God that God sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies and uh, Jerusalem's overthrown. It takes some other years. It's actually around B.C. 586 that Jerusalem's destroyed and overthrown. So Nebuchadnezzar is here. And then we have the reign of Belshazzar who replaces Nebuchadnezzar. And by the end of Daniel 5, Belshazzar is slain. The Lord deals with people in the context of the the affairs globally of history. And so when you get to the middle of Daniel, you find that the Persian Empire has now overthrown the Babylonian Empire. There's a a change in the the power structure in the world. Cyrus comes to power. He, of course, is famous for his decree. And that's how Ezra opens up. And so you've gone from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, and then the Persian Empire is there with Cyrus coming to power. And after Cyrus, Darius is then the king. And during Darius' reign, the, the temple is rebuilt. So in Cyrus' reign, Ezra comes and Ezra returns, or the book of Ezra opens, and there's a return under Zerubbabel, and then later on under Ezra. And then after Cyrus, there's Darius, and Darius... Indeed, in his time, we find the temple being rebuilt. That was, by the way, the first priority. Haggai and Zechariah deal with the building of the temple. And there were some attempts at that time made to repair the walls. But Nehemiah's after all that. So all that history is, has, has flown under the, the bridge, if you like, of the, of the history of God's people. And history goes on. And now after Darius, the next king is a king named Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. He's best known 
for being the king who chose Esther to be his queen. So again, you're seeing that the Bible books are all fitting together in terms of history. And after Xerxes, you have this king, Artaxerxes. And his reign, Ezra, came to Jerusalem. Look what it says, Ezra chapter 7. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, and he was going to say about Ezra, how Ezra comes to Jerusalem. But you see one king coming after another. You have the Babylonians, you have the, the Persians, and now you've got king uh, Artaxerxes coming in, in his reign. And thus that's the reign that Nehemiah is serving in. But the thing I want you to appreciate is that Nehemiah has been born and raised in a time of oppression and defeat for the people of God. My purpose is to remind you all that when you trace back to Nebuchadnezzar and you go through the history of those kings, you must appreciate that Nehemiah was a man born and raised in time of oppression and defeat for the people of God. And that's what makes this man, again, quite a, a remarkable individual. He is not being raised in times of blessing. He's not being raised in times of revival. He's being raised in times of declension and oppression. As our children are also being raised. Difficult times for the people of God. Times when the word of God is being cast aside. Times when God's people are knowing defeat. And so his times... Well, they are times of oppression and declension and defeat. But the man himself, we, we see, again, some interesting insights into the man regarding his own background. There are a number of names that are given to us here in, in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. The names that are given here are significant. Again, the names were always significant in Bible times. The, the father is mentioned nowhere else but here, and his name is Hakaliah. The name means the darkness of Jehovah. It seems that Nehemiah's grandfather, Hakaliah's father, understood that God had turned his face from his people in judgment. Hakaliah is born, and there's a recognition that God's face is darkened towards the people of God. But then Hakaliah comes in the course of time to have his own children. And we have the names given here of two of his sons, Nehemiah himself and also Hanani, one of Nehemiah's brethren. Nehemiah's name is again interesting, two words in the original, one word for Jehovah and the other word again that speaks of comfort or consolation. And you think of Isaiah chapter 40, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, or Psalm 25, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So Nehemiah's name has something to do with the, the comfort of Jehovah. It depends how you organize the, the various parts of the name, but it has those two elements, the Lord Jehovah and the idea of comfort. And it seems to be that Nehemiah's father, Hakaliah, had confidence in the promise of God that though the people were in Babylon, they would not stay there. There was going to be comfort and restoration, as Isaiah promised. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. It's a, it's a promise of restoration, following oppression and judgment. Hanani, that name speaks of God and God being gracious. Again, both the names that he gives his sons are names that convey hope. Men of prayer are not born. Men of prayer are made. Nehemiah stands 
stands into the, uh, the theater of history as a, as a man of tremendous faith and prayer. But he does not arise out of nowhere. He arises out of the context, I believe, of a godly father and a godly home. And as a man of prayer, he is not one who comes by nature. He comes, yes, as one who is born again of the Spirit of God. Faith is always a possession of one who has the Spirit of God, Old and New Testament. There is no faith without the Spirit. But at the same time, you see a man who has the godly influence, it seems, of a father who trusted in the Word of God and believed in the grace of God. This man, he looks upon his little one. You imagine this in the context. They are living in defeat and ruin. The walls are down. The gates have been burned. And this man, Hakaliah, has two sons. And he comes to name them. And he gives them names that do not show defeat but hope. Surely we see a man here who has faith in the power of God to turn things around. And as such... We see a man, I believe, a father who prayed, and out of which a son comes to pray. God works by his Spirit, and he is pleased to use the influence of godly parents. And so we see something of his times, we see something of his background, and then not also his position. We have it revealed for us at the, at the end of the chapter, for I was the king's cupbearer. I always think this is a, a, a tremendous role back in those days. It would mean very little to us today, but in those days it was a tremendously important role. We, we see that, of course, in the days of Pharaoh and the prominence the king's cupbearer plays in the life of Joseph. The cupbearer had the task of testing the, the, the king's wine. Some suggest the reason being that there was always the danger of poison. Unless the cupbearer could test the wine, and if he died, then the king was spared. Well, that's perhaps a theory, but it's an interesting theory regardless. But what we do know very clearly from history is the king's cupbearer was a position that was trusted. And it was a position that had constant access to the king. Great influence, great favor. And we are reminded again that God had his man in the right place at the right time. Again, we're mindful of Esther for such a time as this. God is able to put someone in the right place at the right time just for such a time as this. God is working in the midst of history in ways that we do not always perceive. When Hakaliah is seeing his, his young baby or his baby being born, I suspect he had no idea that Nehemiah would come to be the king's cupbearer. But he was God's man in God's place. In God's time, do you think that God is any less involved in history today than he was then? Do you sit in your home and watch your chosen news channel and wring your hands? Do you tend to forget that there's a God upon the throne who has always been intimately engaged in the affairs of the nations? And the God that raised up Cyrus is the God that puts Esther in the right place in the, in the reign of Xerxes and now puts Nehemiah in the right place in the reign of Artaxerxes. God is able. But in the second place, note the cause of his prayer. And we have it in verse number three. Well, back to verse number two. Hananiah came with certain of the men of Judah and they had obviously been to Jerusalem. 
And then I asked them, well, what about the Jews that had escaped? There were obviously some who had, who had returned Jerusalem from the, the captivity. Perhaps they had gone back in the, in the time of Cyrus or, or one of the later times under the rubble. We're not told exactly how they got there. And then they get the report. Verse 3, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Nehemiah has this report. The walls, again, in those days, these are walled cities. Again, you think of, of Jericho and the importance of the walls. The walls signified defense. The walls are broken, and the people are vulnerable. Vulnerable to attack, vulnerable to uh, the oppression of, of enemies who come in and overthrow the people. There's vulnerability when the walls are, uh, again, are broken down. The gates, well, they were very much part of the walls, of course. You had, you know, the sheep gate was a place where the, the sheep of sacrifice were brought into the city to be, to be offered in the temple. The gates were places of, of judgment, places of instruction, places of, of business and prosperity. And so what's indicated here is that, uh, that when the gates are burned down, uh, there is no prosperity in the people. There is no enjoyment of God's prosperity. And so Nehemiah hears this report about the vulnerability and about the lack of prosperity of God's people. And he weeps. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. You see his concern? Nehemiah, in our terms, he had it made. He had a prominent job, well provided for undoubtedly. And yet we see a man with a burden for his people. He viewed the people as God's people. He views them as the, uh, the children of Israel, the covenant people, therefore his people. You have it there in the verse number 6, for the children of Israel, thy servants, he refers to them as thy people in verse number 10. He understands the, the people and, and their afflictions are, are afflictions of those who are the Lord's people. He has a care for the honor of God's name. People who are defenseless, they're not enjoying prosperity, they're ineffective. He's got a burden and a concern. We may have it made in so many ways. We certainly haven't made financially in the, in the Western world. And yet the people of God are, are suffering affliction elsewhere. But we must also be conscious that there are many of God's true children. In churches where the walls are broken down and the gates have been burned. And yes, of course, I'm talking here in, in a metaphorical sense. I'm, I'm talking in picture language. But there are the children of God in places where the walls of biblical doctrine have been overthrown. And fundamentals were overthrown bit by bit, less and less important, whereby the people of God are now prey to all sorts of errors. We should not simply be, be, be content with, a, with our own prosperity and well-being and then forget to have a burden for those who are in danger and who are not enjoying the prosperity of God. And Nehemiah's conviction that arises from his concern is that only God can deal with this. We see him in his approach in verse number 4. He sits down, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, indicating his humility before God, and he prays before the God of heaven, only God. No one but God can do what is needed for the walls to rise again. 
And so it is for us today, only God can intervene to the well-being of the church. Which then leads to the content of the prayer. I believe that prayers should, should be from the heart and not from a book. We might get help from certain prayer books, but ultimately when we come before God, it's between God and me. And therefore, I ought to use my words to, to bring my words to God. But those words ought to be governed by the Word of God. That as we bring our heartfelt, honest prayers, they ought to be informed by the examples of men of God in prayer. I don't intend to deal in great detail with the content of the prayer tonight, but just really outline it for you at this time. James Montgomery Boyce, he makes the point that this prayer, uh, again, it shows... It shows something of the, of the pattern of praying that we see in the Word of God, and he puts it under the helpful acrostic. You know, and you've got letters that are lined up, and the acrostic is the, the acrostic acts, A-C-T-S. It's a helpful uh, guide to prayer. And the A stands for adoration, the C for confession, the T for thanksgiving, and the S for supplication. And you'll see adoration verses 5 and 6. He says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. It's short and pithy, but it's reverent, and it contains references to God's sovereignty, God's power, God's holiness, God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's justice. They're all encompassed in these words. Men will always develop in prayer who know God more and more. If our young people want to know how to pray, they must dig into the Word to know more of God. Because out of this sense of God comes an inevitable sense of our unworthiness to come before God. And here we have the echoes of Solomon's prayers. Let thine ears be attentive. Let thine eyes be open. There's a conscious awareness of the need for God's grace for the prayer to be heard. So when you come to pray and you have this A at the forefront of your mind, this adoration of God in all of his attributes, you're immediately brought to the point that you do not by yourself deserve to be heard. It is only God who will hear you in his grace. He then goes on to confess their sins. Sort of verse 6 in the second half of verse 6 into verse number 7. He refers to confession of sins of the children of Israel. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. He refers to transgressions. He refers to, to not keeping the commandments of God, sins of commission and sins of omission. Simply note that sin has consequences. And we can't expect God's blessing until sin is dealt with. Again, there can be very many social commentaries regarding why the church in America is in the state it's in today. But surely there have been sins. Surely there has been the, the sin of materialism. Surely there has been within the church a, a widespread blind eye to the abortion movement. A voice here, a voice there. But we've allowed hundreds of thousands of children to be killed. There are surely sins that we must take account of in the church of Christ. There's adoration and confession. Thanksgiving is not explicitly mentioned here, but it's certainly implied throughout with God's dealings with his people. He refers again to, to how God has been pleased to give promises. And so we see him come to supplication. I wonder if I'd asked you at the start of this message tonight, what does Nehemiah pray for? I wonder how you'd have answered. 
Because you don't actually get the supplication to the very end of the chapter. And the supplication is basically, let the servant prosper in the sight of the king. That's the prayer. He has a very particular burden. But his burden and his supplication, they come out of a knowledge of God and a knowledge of God's word. And so he brings the supplication at the end. But he is, he's, he's pushing that supplication with so many holy arguments, presenting the character of God and the ways of God and the promises of God. And do we not so often get this reversed? We bring the supplication right at the very beginning. God, do this and do that. Some like some some prayer shopping list regarding our desires and our needs. But here we see a man of God. And what does he do? He brings his prayer in light of who God is and what God has done and what God has promised. And thus he comes and prays, not brashly or arrogantly, but humbly and reverently, yet boldly. You have said this, Lord, therefore do this. He prays with confidence. He's pleading the purchase of God. Verse number 10. These people have been redeemed by thy great power. They are your people. They belong to you. Why should you answer prayers? Because the people are your people. And thus he brings this concrete request. Only at the very end of the prayer. Because he knows that his only hope of success is that King Artaxerxes is favorable to his situation. Well, he's a wise man, Nehemiah. He doesn't pray immediately for the walls to be rebuilt, for the gates to be restored. That's his ultimate purpose. But what's he doing? He's simply praying one thing at a time. I think that's a very important lesson for God's people. We long to see thy churches full with all thy chosen race. How does that come about? How are these pews going to be filled with worshippers and prayer warriors? Well, they're fulfilled by God putting a burden in the hearts of his people. By God lighting a fire in the hearts of his people that they'd have a burden to, to reach for the lost and to pray for the lost. How are the churches filled? By God raising up one missionary or one pastor, one at a time, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We, we have the, the big end picture, and that's a good thing. But let's take the example here and pray for simple things, for God to do the simple things in our midst. And that bit by bit, we would see the walls rebuilt and the gates put back upon the posts. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.